Okay. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Hi, welcome very much to Unraveled Fred. So this is the first event um, that we've put on as part of the exhibition Fred's Breathing Stories into Materials, which opened yesterday to the public. So thank you very much for coming along and joining us. Um, we are recording this event, um, which is why we've got mics there. So if we do ask if you do ask a question at the end, we might ask you to come to a mic or we might bring a mic to you. Um, so hopefully that's okay with everyone. I also just wanted to say, if anyone is feeling shy but would really like a bean bag, please help yourself. They're there to be sat on, so do feel like you can get comfortable. Um, the way that we're running this event today, so we are really delighted to be joined by three of the artists who are in Fred's Breathing Stories into Materials, Richard McVettis, Yong Hong, and Ifoma Yuanyeji. We are hoping as well there was a fourth artist, Anya Payne, still but unfortunately she's not very well there's a small possibility she might join us so if she does then we'll sort of incorporate that and wrap that back into the event today um, but each of the talks are going to last for approximately 25 minutes to half an hour there'll be an opportunity to ask questions yourselves of the artists and what we're hoping for is just a really informal event and a chance really for the artists and Freds to tell their own stories about the materials that they use so we're going to start the uh, series of talks today by talking to Ifoma Yuanjeji and Ifoma is a Nigerian neo-traditional artist born in Benin City who decided to take up art as a full-time career, exploring her boundaries as a female artist beyond the conventions of the initial academic training in painting. She later went on to pursue her earlier interest in sculpture and engaging further her passion for non-conventional art making and repurposing discarded objects, an interest stimulated by the constant environmental problems she encountered around her community, particularly from non-biodegradable plastic bags and bottles. So I think we'll start. Alice, would you like to start with the first question? Right. Can, can you hear me? Is my microphone working all right? Welcome, Ifoma. If any of you have seen her work, it's extraordinary. Have you seen it upstairs? And we've got the images rotating. So I'm just going to put my glasses on. We've prepared various questions for you. Um, well, could you just start by sharing your own story, telling us about the work you create, process of creation and what you're currently working on maybe how this this piece has evolved because I know it's a kind that these pieces endure that they, they, they progress they have they evolve in the making could you just kind of take us through some of your practice uh, good afternoon everyone um, thank you uh, Alice and Gemma uh, I, as you all know, my primary medium is plastic bags, and that's for a very uh, specific reason, because it's very common in Nigeria. Um, the, it started off from this thing called uh, pure water bags, which is um, uh, non-biodegradable plastic bags that are like what, they're actually water sachets for packing uh, portable drinking water. So you know what, milk bags, right? Um, so in Nigeria, we have, uh, an alternative to bottled water, you have them in, um, they're like very small transparent sa uh, sachet bags. And that grew into a very uh, big industry. In fact, it started off as people selling water in buckets in the market stall. And if you wanted, you give a coin or a note and they will you know, use a cup to give you the quantity of water that you want to buy. And somebody thought about, oh, well, let's make it more hygienic. and um, uh, start wrapping it in transparent cellophane, which is also plastic bag. So they'll pour the water in the bag and then tie it and then give it to you, which is better than sharing cups and having to wash cups in the market. 
And eventually, I guess somebody figured out, oh, well, why don't we create this thing that's a little bit much better than you know the way we've been doing it? And so the, that's how the water sachet bags came to be. And it became a very huge industry in um, early 1990s. And um, everybody was doing it, everybody and anything, including the university where I was um, schooling at that time. Um, people would want to attach some kind of affiliation to water sachet, uh, to the water sachet industry. But bearing in mind in Nigeria, we don't have a very good recycling culture, especially for plastic, because plastic is a kind of a new material, uh, packaging material that was introduced to Nigeria because of the abundance of petroleum. Otherwise, you know, the idea of waste has always been um, kind of a taboo, and we had our natural ways of dealing with waste, which is most times combustible um, uh, waste. And so with plastic, nobody knew what to do with it. And you know, it's natural that um, when you use something, you throw it away in the ground because it will decompose. And so the, the, the same would apply for plastic and people would you know, use it and throw it on the ground, but it doesn't decompose. Mm. And because we don't have a recycling culture like that, that deals with that kind of material, it became a huge problem, and it was very common um, in the university. In, during my university days, undergrad days, I would see a lot of um, the plastic bags by the factory. So whenever I would go out to do um, outdoor drawing, usually close to the uh, university um, water factory, I would see this heap, and every time I would ask, why don't you guys do something with it? And they're like, yeah, we use it. And you would expect that the heap will go down. Instead, it keeps increasing. So by the time I had graduated, the pile went from like this to like this. And I'm like, there has to be something that, that could be done about this. You know, it, it just can't keep accumulating and uh, becoming a nuisance. Um, because you would have, I remember then, we, I grew up in the city, but my father raised us like we were in the village. So we had lots of goats and sheep. We used to walk on the street with goats and sheep. Just like this, and occasionally the the uh, would have times when some of them would die because they used to eat the plastic. They thought it was food, and so that spot, you know, fast forward. That I started experimenting with them. First of all, I started using it. Uh, I started making canvases out of it because I trained first as a painter, and then I figured it's not it's not getting anywhere. I'm not doing anything reasonable with this. And then someday I um stumbled upon a. a piece of plastic bag that I had threaded. Now threading is a traditional Nigerian hair braiding technique that I grew up doing. So it's very architectural. And if you've seen um, my work, you will see some images, um, uh, some laser cut images attached to the work of you know, hairstyle. That's just a sample of what threading looks like. And because I grew up doing this, I had always used to do it for my younger sister until she went from natural to permed hair. So I couldn't do it, but because it was just a normal thing for me to do, I would, in the absence of dolls, I would braid anything that looked like hair, cloth, and apparently plastic bags. So I saw that and I was like, wait, I can do something with the plastic bags. You know, if I can't paint, I could perhaps braid the bags, uh, plate the bags. I don't say braiding, it's plating or plaiting, depending on your accent. And so that's how I started. And it grew into this thing that I'm now doing, which I call uh, plasto yarning, uh, which is the act of turning the plastic bags into yarns. And it was very interesting for me because I realized that 
I could also do the same thing that I do with a, a pencil, which is make drawings and tell stories. Um, I, I come from a family of storytellers. My grandmother was a storyteller, my father and my mother. Uh, I heard a lot of stories and also I figured while I was trying to understand this practice that I was uh, engaging myself in, I didn't yet have a name for it. I didn't quite understand uh, what it was called because remember I had the, um, the, the, the colonial training and we were basic, you're basically told how to make art, which has always been very awkward for me because the first thing you're taught in, in the art school is art is the expression of self. But you're never allowed to express yourself because they keep telling you what to express, <laughs> which is kind of awkward to me. And I've just figured, you know, with this one, I can own it and I can uh, actually express myself and tell the things, the stories that I want to tell, describe the images that I want to describe. And... Um, so generally when I create works, my works are uh, usually um, descriptions of the things that happen around me or have happened. Uh, and um, they're usually events, experiences, um, sometimes you know, trying to replicate a space, usually domestic space, because I wanted to create works that talked about the material but made it also approachable to people. Because one thing I notice about the environmental art which is where most people will classify me in, is that we talk up, we have all these elaborate ideas about environmentalism and we expect the public to participate, but there's so much disconnect that people look at it from a distance. So when you're saying, oh, you should uh, recycle, upcycle, reuse, repurpose, people don't know how to connect because they're looking at it like, what exactly is, I mean, you have to be an artist to be able to do that. And so most times I will make forms that are, you know, that will replicate things that people can understand, usually domestic spaces like furniture and stuff. But also I would uh, include, you know, uh, folklore, music, and what have you in it. And for this piece, uh, it was no different because uh, this work started, uh, this work titled Ezuhezu, which is incomplete, uh, in and complete in bracket, um, uh, which means Ezuhezu is, is my local language, and I usually like to um, uh, title my works in my language because I always talked. I always thought that, you know, when I did my MFA, I was told that what I was doing was called upcycling. But then, as I honed my practice, I realized that that's not even the word because that doesn't exist. The closest thing to what I would call what I do is, um, uh, in terms of my cultural background, would be rebirth. You know the idea of rebirth, of of, of, of um, giving something a new life, and generally we know that the issue of waste exists because we are told that things have a very limited lifespan, and uh, until we understand that everything has an ex has the possibility to have an extended life, to be reborn in different forms and have different uses waste will always continue to exist no matter what you know we keep blaming the object as the problem but the problem is not the object the problem is us plastic is not the enemy we are our own enemy plastic doesn't get up and jump into the mount of the object of the of the of the plant or the tortoise or anything it's you and i who put that plastic there that these other um, elements interact with and then probably suffer the, the you know the repercussion and so um, I realized that 
I can't be calling because my, my own kind of reuse and repurposing of plastic bags, initially I was focusing on just the material, but then I thought, what about the non-tangible objects? What about culture? Why must the idea of reuse be centered just on the physical objects? Because there are lots of things that we're losing, especially those of us from um, the African continent, because we're trying to um, uh, match up with the expectation of uh, what globalization means, there's a lot of our cultural, uh, cultural um, elements that we are shedding very quickly, which is kind of sad because, you know, it's funny. I, I used to play this, uh, say this joke that um, no matter how much I paint myself white with white chalk, I can never be a white person, you know. Uh, and it's true. It, it, it's uh, the same can be said for the opposite. So no matter how much I try to, you know, I'm speaking English because I was colonized to speak English, but generally I should be speaking my language. And sadly, a lot of people are also losing that. And so those are the elements I was trying to bring back and I felt, so if I'm doing this, then I definitely will not be calling my practice upcycling, that it has to be something. Um, so I thought, well, neo-traditionalism, which is kind of saying, um, a renewing, a rebirth of traditional, um, of, tradi of anything traditional. And mind you, for me, traditional means the contemporary of that time. Even though we usually say traditional and contemporary as traditional meaning something that has passed. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, it's actually the contemporary of that time. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so it, bringing it back to this work uh, and this whole idea of um, uh, creating, if I should use the title, threads of connect, connection between what I'm doing as an environmental artist and also as a, um, a traditional Nigerian artist, uh, a storyteller. I was given a book in 2017 uh, by a, a curator from Ukraine, and the book was written in Ukrainian. Uh, it's titled Ediniye. Um, and I read the book and he, I was told to, you know, interpret it however I so fit, uh, see it. And the book was very interesting because I've, that was the first time I've ever done that. I've never done that before. I usually tell my own stories, not other people's stories. And um, it talked a lot. It was a very utopian, futuristic book mixed with some element. It was it was in between everywhere. It was so surreal. And if um, I was going to just ask quickly, was was that book given to you in order for you to respond to it for the exhibition that you yes, were creating at yes, the time? Yeah, okay. the the curator read the book. Uh, sorry, translated the book to English for me to be able to read. Of course, I don't know how to speak Ukrainian, um, but that was the idea mm -hmm. that I would read it and then respond to it however way I choose for the exhibition. And of so, course, it has a very contemporary resonance now in yeah, the light of what's yeah. happened in. So um, the thing that I picked, the, the thing that was very common in that book was, um, it's a very beautiful book, if you get the chance to read it, um, you should, um, uh, was this issue of time and the passage of time and um, uh, the connections between the human beings and the elements and the environment. It was not very obvious, but it was, it was subtly repeated over and over throughout the pages. And then I was thinking, in all these things that I create, um, 
there's always one very common thing that I experience, which is time, the, issue, the problem of time. You know, I'm always, I always have to meet the deadline, I always have to finish your work, I always have to, you know, try and catch up with whatever is, even right now, when I'm creating this, I have to create this work, I have to do it for this exhibition at this particular time. Actually, Ifoma, I'm going to just share as well with the audience, so the reason you haven't got recent pictures of Ifoma's work um, in the exhibition on the sort of slideshow behind us is because has actually been here with us in Bristol for the last 10 days, transforming the work that's in the exhibition, and I think there's even some bits still to be added, isn't there? So that piece will Hopefully. still keep evolving. Yeah, so um, I then thought, I've always had at the back of my head, I would like to create a work that does not have a time limit. So the work, generally my work, um, if, I'm, if I make a work that it hasn't been sold and it's still with me, I will always keep working on it because the stories in my head or the things that I, I want to tell or share are never finished and I always want to add to it. I feel like I, I don't have enough time. I may run out of time so I want to share as much as I can. In, you know, put into this work and then I figured, why don't you just make a work that does not have, it doesn't end, I just keep going and I stop whenever, if it's a hundred, if I live up to a hundred years, God willing, and I have to keep making the same work, I, I would like to see what happens. So I started this, um, this work uh, uh, generally in 2017 was when, was the official start date because that was when the exhibition was done and it was a, just a pretty small, uh, about what, three to four feet? I don't know that in meters. Um, and I told them, you know, install it in this way. It actually had live grass, you know. It was um, kind of, it was supposed to be done almost like a performance in my absence. And then when it, brought, when it was brought back to me, um, so the idea was that when the work comes back to me, I won't touch it. It's left in the crate where it is. It will only be expanded when it's been you know, exhibited. So, and the idea will be that the space where I'm going to exhibit it will um, inform my decision to say, okay, maybe I need to add to it, or maybe I need to take out from it, or maybe I need to adjust it. And so the work has, I've had several installations. I think this might be the sixth or seventh of, the, of it. Could you tell us what you added to it when in Bristol? So when I, uh, when Gemma shared the images of the gallery, so I don't, I don't usually have a sense of space when you show it to me. I'm a very physical person, so when you tell me numbers, I just um, say yeah until I see it. Um, so when Gemma showed me the images of the gallery, I thought, okay, maybe this will work. I might not do much to it, and then I realized, and then I was trying to do the translation from meters to, and I was like, wait, it's the same kind of uh, space as, because I, I showed it at the Baltic, in Newcastle and I walked into the building and I was like, nope, the thing I had was like this, the wall was 24 feet and I'm like, it's not happening. Uh, I have to add to it. So I felt the same thing here and I figured, why not? Um, it does need something to be added. There, there, is, there is some kind of story that I would like to connect to this place by adding that uh, conversation into that piece and so, uh, Gemma and Alice uh, and uh, Anofini offered me a residency because um, I guess I don't live here and it would be kind of much, uh, it would be a bit tricky for me to do that here and have that sent here. Um, and also that would have given me a bit of a, there will be some kind of, um, 
I would have a little bit of connection here because I will be doing it from here, so I would pick up things from my daily commute and add to it, and I thought, uh, I, I had a bench that, so I showed the work at um, Glasgow in May, in March to, and it ended in June, and the thing with me is when I'm in a place, I like to scavenge for stuff, and I saw this bench, and I was like, oh, this piece needs to have some place where people can sit on and actually sit in the work and interact with the work as opposed to stand away from the work. Um, usually I used to allow people touch and if there's a sitting element, sit on it, but you would have people who were not very respectful of the work and so I, I stopped doing that, which is kind of sad because I do want people to interact and have a feeling like, I like when people say, oh, what's that material? And I'm like, what do you think it is? And then, oh, it's rope. I'm like, are you sure it's rope? Oh, it's hair. I'm like, you sure it's hair? And then they're like, oh, it's plastic. I'm like, exactly. So the fact that you don't know it's plastic, which means it's doing a good job. And so I wanted uh, to have something that would, um, even though you really still are not allowed to sit on it, but ha still have some kind of feeling that you are actually, you know, imagine yourself sitting on it um, and interacting with the work. And so I created a bench. Um, which is what I added um, to the piece. And so I, I will be adding things or may not be adding things <laughs> before I leave mm -hmm. on Monday um, just because I feel like sometimes when I talk to people, I listen to certain things and I'm like, oh, it reminds me of this thing that happened to me as a child. Maybe I should. It's, so it's, it's in a way my work is a journal. Not in a way, it's actually a journal. So it's me journaling things and writing things that are particular to me. But most important, I'm always curious to know what people think because I know what the work is about. Uh, but I um, want people to interact with the work in a way where they can pick out something because then it goes back to the idea that I have given the plastic bags and the bottles and the found objects some kind of different meaning other than what it would have been generally if it was on the street you know, on the floor and you walked past it. Um, Maybe yeah. that's a good point to ask anyone if they've seen it, what they, how they read if I'm with peace. So has anyone yeah. seen it? Don't be shy. <laughs> Do you want to share what your thoughts were when you saw it? I'm intrigued about the use of the laser cut in combination with the slowing down with the materiality Breaking, cutting, whatever you want to call them. Um, you've got one that's about slowing down, and then one that's about speed and quickly realizing something. So I was quite intrigued at duality of materials and processes. I'm just going to sort of um, summarise that just so yeah. that it's caught on the recording. So I think the yeah. question was about an interest in the way that you use laser cut and the difference between the different materials that you're using and that idea of slow materials and maybe materials that you use in quite a fast way and the idea of the duality there. Okay, so uh, first of all, the laser cut materials is I don't... Um, so in university, I'm doing my PhD now at Montreal and they have a, a computer room where they have the laser machine and... Most times I, I have a, I'm a sucker for wood, anything wood, I'm always intrigued by it. And I always see lots of laser cuts that, you know, off cuts that people have thrown away and I always like to see interesting patterns. So um, the reason why I chose the laser cut was because I could have done drawings by hand, but I'm also, I'm, 
in my practice, I'm trying to shy away from the traditional way I was trained. Um, I, I used to do realism, you know, that was my thing, you know, but I, I was trying, I'm trying to move away from that by not getting too um, formal, you know. Um, but then I chose the laser cut because I realized that see, I don't make drawings. And because the thoughts, the drawings are in my head, most times I'm not fast enough because my practice is very menial. Um, I have to thread the backs and it takes months, sometimes years. I'm not fast enough to uh, interpret my thoughts very quickly. And sometimes they disappear and, some and I feel a bit sad like, oh, I've lost that, it's gone. And then I saw this magical thing called laser, uh, laser cuts. I'm like, oh wait, at least there's a part that I can speed up. But the other part, <laughs> I'm definitely not touching. Um, so that's why I, 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 I switched to, uh, and also because uh, it's a very interesting material and form of um, making too. If you, you know, this idea of the, the, the manual versus the machine, you know, um, doing something menially and repetitively uh, by hand and having the machine do the same thing by hand. And, uh, it, and it's also secretly a competition between me and the machine, you know, like, let's see who's, who, whose part comes out better. <laughs> so that, that's usually my thought when I do that, um, yeah. Can I ask you something, sure. if I may? So, I'm, and I'm really interested in the way you, 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 you responded to the book. This is about a kind of futuristic world, a utopia. And I really see that in this piece, that you're, you're creating a world that you want to inhabit. Um, but, but as you say, you're drawing from the past, but you're making the past part of the present, but looking to the future. Mm. And I just wondered how you see this idea of resolving the use of plastic as part of that futuristic world and how you're, how you're telling that story for the future in the work. Maybe that's an impossible question to answer. No, but no, I, I think I may attempt to answer it. Um, the truth is, I, I mean, I've been asked that, what happens if you run out of plastic bags? And I say, well, yeah, I, look for, it, I look for another material. Is it optimistic, this future? No, I, I mean, I, I, I always have two answers. I say, oh, well, I can look for another material because the truth is, is waste is, with the way that we've conditioned society, waste will always continue to exist. So I will always look, I will always, I will always have another kind of material to work with. But, also, truthfully, plastic won't disappear because if you look around us, virtually everything, mm -hmm. other than the you know the human flesh, even the human flesh is slowly kind kind of uh, incorporating uh, plastic in it. And so, um, we have to understand that plastic is here to stay. It's how we and that applies to every other kind of material. You know, um, it's how we. Uh, not just integrate ourselves with it, but also find ways to work with it. That's most important. Um, I, I believe so it's, a, it's a broader, what you're saying is a broader comment yeah. on life yeah. and how we, how we, and this idea that we create a utopian world that yeah. is about materials, it's about making, it's about cultural identity. Yeah, I mean, you know, you actually even have it happening now where people are beginning to build um, housing, sustainable housing with the same plastic material. So at some point we have to recognize that um, uh, if, we're, if we're going to create a very 
sensible, sensibly sustainable world, then we have to know how to work our way, weave our way with, with these material. Otherwise, we will st you can fight all you want. Um, it will still continue to persist. And, uh, you know, who knows? Plastic might be the, the, the future building, the future... Actually, no, not, not might. It is already. You know, our cars are made from plastic. Our homes, part of our homes is made from plastic. So our font, we are all sitting on plastic. So, um, yeah. Thank you, Ifoma. That's been absolutely fascinating. We've got Thank a couple you. of minutes just before we move on to the next speaker. So are there any other questions for Ifoma before we move on? I'm about um. to be grilled. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we, we met in the cafe. I asked the same question. I was saying, oh, your work, um, the caption was saying your work was starting from 2017 and it didn't have an ending point. And you said, yes, it doesn't. <laughs> um, I want to ask this question as an artist. You know, um, it's probably about your connection with, between you and your, 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 your piece. Because... Uh, we, we make a work and we change throughout the time and, and my emotions and involvement with a specific work changes after one year, two years, three years. But it seems you, you have a um, quite specific or very patient relation with your work and that you're, you're changing with your work probably. So it, it seems like your work is like a living being. And, and I want to ask you particularly about this work that you began in 2017, which is six years ago, and, and how, I mean, what is your relation by now, and how do you project for the future, and, and is it going to be continuing really forever, or do you want to, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, I have a very, I have a very um, intimate relationship with my work. I'm very guarded about my work. It's almost very difficult to pry to get me to release a work um, because it's the one place where I, um, I was telling Alice where I have total ownership. Even when the work is sold, I still kind of want to have some kind of ownership, which some people don't like. Um, just because I feel like I see the work as a real extension of myself because it's it's a lot a lot of what I put out is things that I've experienced you know personally, and stories that I want to tell uh, without you know um, obviously saying it but you know putting it out in there, and um, yes the work I have changed with I I don't know if I would say I've changed with the work completely because the work doesn't really um, Maybe changed isn't really the correct word. It extends, actually. That's what I use. I, I, um, I always like to, if I do a work that has been reworked a bit or added to, I say an extend, extended. Um, I put in bracket extended. So it's an extension. It will continue. Um, it's, a, it's a leaving thing now. Um, and so, uh, yes, of course, there will be no um, date. Maybe, who knows? This might be the last time I'll be like, okay, I'm done with it. Um, or it would just continue until, I don't know, I pass out someday. Um, hopefully not, not anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. 
Thank you very much, Ifoma. So we're just going to take just two minutes, just have a very small break um, before we move on to talking to Richard. Um, but Ifoma is going to stay with us and may well have some questions for Richard and Yongin as well. Um, but yeah, at the end, they'll have, there'll be more opportunities to ask questions. So we'll just give everyone just a couple of minutes break. Thanks very much. Welcome, Richard. Um, so I'm just going to give a quick, a quick biography, and then we'll ask you some questions. I have to put my glasses on, I'm afraid, because my eyesight is very poor. Um, so, so Richard, I don't think we've ever met, but I, I feel like I know Richard because he studied at Manchester School of Art, which is where I work. Um, but I think you were there just before I arrived. But of course, your presence is powerfully felt still, um, and it's um, and and you know, so you're rooted in in stitch and embroidery tradition. You know, I, I I know this kind of legacy of that, and it's so evident in your work. This kind of facility and power of making. Um, then you studied at the Royal College of Art, and you now teach there. And I'm not going to read the whole of your biography because it's quite extensive, but you've been involved in various distinguished prizes. You were shortlisted for the Joa Drawing Prize in 2011-2017, um, um, the International Lowy Craft Prize. And you've exhibited in the British Textile Biennial, Kettle's Yard, Design Museum, and a major exhibition at the British Council in South Korea, actually, Youngin, did you know that? <laughs> so, uh, and, of course, you've just had your first solo show at the Craft Study Centre in 2022. And as I say, your, your practice is deeply rooted in process, in, intrinsically hand embroidery, and interestingly, it crosses over with some of the things that Ifoma was saying about time. It's a record of time, multiple dots and crosses and lines, meticulously rendered. And that sort of preoccupation and accumulation and repetitive nature of time is very evident in the process. Um, and there's more writing about that here, but I think we can ask you about that. So I'm going to hand over to Gemma. Yeah, so Richard, we thought we'd just start by asking you the same question we started with Ifoma, which is to ask you really if you could just tell us a little bit about your own textile story and, and how you began and what drew you to textiles. Um, great, thank you very much, uh, everyone, for being here. And yeah, when you were talking about your work there, Matt, there were lots of parallels, I thought, um, especially that idea of sort of time and labour. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, my first approach really to embroidery, which I'd never thought would be a through line through my practice at all, um, was drawing. I mean, mm -hmm. I like drawing. Um, and it was really um, the power of a teacher, you know, to direct me in, to the course where they thought I'd be most suitable. And so I, I, sh I did Art Foundation. Um, and um, I never knew there was a degree in embroidery. You could, I mean, maybe there's only one in the country still left. Um, but I went to visit this course um, and saw one guy on the course and he was drawing and I love drawing. So it was just a sort of an immediate connection. Mm -hmm. And hand embroidery was a much more, you know, a later discovery. I'd never sewn before, before that. Um, and we were asked to write uh, an essay on a specific um, area of embroidery, um, historically, you know, seen as this sort of medium of um, opulence and wealth, really. Um, and actually over the years has become 
you know, familiar with domestic and very um, mundane, but in mundane in the most beautiful everyday sort of way. Um, and um, I saw a sample from Blackwork Embroidery, if everyone knows it, 16th century, and, and on this piece of work was this beautiful uh, speckling stitch, which is called speckling or seeding, and I drew in the same way. So I draw in a very graphic way, sort of interiors or architectural, and somewhere my work is kind of architectural in the way it takes shape. So really that was the beginning of it, really there. And I think if I'd gone anywhere else, I still would have found a process. I was hungry for something, a medium in which I could communicate my story with. Um, and it just happened to be that it landed with embroidery at, at the right time. Mm. So that's where it kind mm. of all started. I wonder if I can just pick up something you just said and in the light of what Ifoma was saying. How do you feel you place yourself within a tradition? Are you part of a canon that you are taking forward, that you're interpreting? Do you feel, you, you know, you talked about black work. Mm. I wonder if there's something that is essentially informative about you and your identity that's within the within the embroidery practice that you're yeah I think it's really you. important that um, everyone knows that I studied embroidery because I'm heavily influenced by it um, mm. and so that was a really formative experience for me so I don't think I would have done it in that specific way and if anyone knows black and black work embroidery it's usually black silk on a white linen but I work with a, a cream cotton a, a, a cream wool and a black cotton um, so it's sort of aesthetically very similar. But I would, I feel like I would do injustice to those people who can actually do blackwork embroidery because uh, blackwork embroidery encompasses many different techniques. So when people call me embroiderer, I feel like I'm sort of faking it a little bit because I, I do stitch, but not at the exquisite I level. I don't think you're faking <laughs> it. <laughs> um, at, the, at the exquisite level that, that, you know, that's represented in some of these historical... Um, um, samples or, or pieces but I do think I'm part of um, this sort of reinterpretation of it and I for me I love that that idea of paying reverence to the past yeah. absolutely because especially embroidery or stitch or the needle in itself is such a powerful you know piece of technology and equipment um, but we sort of don't think of it as this high tech bit of tech you know mm -hmm. The, the needle and the sort of democracy of the needle and how you can sort of pick it up and take it with you and go anywhere you want with it, mm. you know, in your mind, but also physically as well. It's really interesting that you've mentioned, obviously, that relationship with the past. And obviously, time is such an important part of your work in the same way that Ifeoma talked about. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about the work which is in the exhibition um, and how what the relationship is with time and that particular work. So, I mean, um, the, the journey with time is, is a, a much more recent, uh, I would say, from maybe 2015. Um, so process has always been the core of my work, um, but it's always a question that everyone... Ever, people are slightly obsessed with this idea that, that someone would sit and spend a long amount of time doing stuff, especially now in the world of, you know, click, 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 fast, fast, fast. You know, I, I sort of... I fight that, and I, for me, it's about slow, slow, s slow. So I make slow, extremely slow work, um, and people always ask me how long it takes to make. It's, it, it, it sort of amazes people that I would sit there and do that. So it became a sort of an investigation into time, and I really wanted to understand what it was about time specifically that fascinated with me. Um, you know, I love physics. I did physics A-level. Um, and I really wanted to do physics, but chose embroidery. It was a conflict that I had there, and I probably chose 
the hardest one, <laughs> I think, um, embroidery to make a sort of career out of. Um, so um, for me, you know, it's a very labor-intensive pro uh, labor process. And I like this idea that actually, as I'm making, I'm embedding myself into the fabric. And so I'm making time vi uh, visible. Mm. Um, and when you think about time, it's quite an abstract concept. It's, you know, it's immaterial, it's ethereal, it's all around us. And we, but we can see time, um, especially you know, on your face or in your hair, you know, as you age. Um, and it's sort of the material that you know, everyone has a very finite amount of. And so I, what I wanted to do is also show that it was very subjective, like time is subjective and that it emanates from us very differently. So the piece of work I have in the show is actually inspired by uh, the number 60. So 60 seconds, 60 minutes the sexagonal system in which we measure time. And it's become, you know, started with the Sumerians and the Babylonians. Um, and so really it was a sort of a, a maths, physics sort of experiment. Um, and the aesthetic and the title actually um, are inspired by Sol Lewitt's variations of an incomplete cube, this sort of irrational obsession with the shape. And I wanted to show time in my time, because it is, if you did it, it would be completely different. Mm -hmm. And also if I did it again, it would be completely different as well, how subjective um, um, and varied time is. So each of the cubes, I've, I've presented 60 cubes upstairs, they're all 60 millimeters by 60 millimeters. Everything is a composite of 60. 60 is like the most highly composite number. And actually it's how we measure our financial calendars. So six times 60, 360. So mm -hmm. the financial calendars are still measured in that same way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's a number which governs our lives. Um, and so I wanted to create this sort of diary piece. Um, so I made it over eight months and I started with one hour of stitching on the first cube, um, two hours on the second, three, four. Um, so it became a sequence. Um, and I, I again, I, I refer to Saul Lewis' paragraphs of conceptual art where he, he basically decided that, you know, conceptual art was all about a sort of perfunctory affair. So I set myself a set of rules and then I work to those rules and systems and then within those rules then allows a sort of creative freedom. So the cube became the, and the grid almost became a way to sort of rationalize the chaos of time. So I could almost, you know, crop out of my life a bit of fabric which sort of represented eight months of my life. And the, and the, and the whole presentation of the work as well um, um, as this grid gives you this idea of infinity and uniformity. You know, if you're zooming in on a phone and then the grid starts to go out, so actually it would just keep going on and on and on. So like you, when you were saying, um, if you're about, you could just keep making, making. For me, it's the same thing. I think like, I could just keep mm. stitching these tiny dots it's really over interesting and over and over. In a way, you're poles apart, but there are these crossovers. Um, I'm just wondering, a bit you talking could you take us through how you actually make because it feels as though there's a kind of ritual attached to this and I imagine it's a very quiet space that you have everything laid out very carefully that you've prepared and I just wonder how you create this environment because there's a kind of sacredness to it um, you know what how do you you know everyone has said she she collects things as she comes in to work and it's a, a diary in that sense. I wonder about your sort of making moments, whether you could describe what, how you do it and what you think and what you listen to and what you... Yeah, I mean, it's a really physical process um, and everyone thinks of embroidery as being this quite domestic and um, calming sort of state of creation, but... Um, actually, for me, it's not so much. Um, you know, uh, I am 
both thinking sort of crazy things, but also I'm calm, but also sort of frantic all at the same time. So it's not always like the perfect scene that you might imagine. No, that's I think, interesting. And I think yeah. that is the, that's the sort of, the, again, the duality of the sewing is that everyone thinks of it. And actually it is meditative and I, me I do meditate. Um, I don't meditate through stitch, I, I meditate through stitch, but I also do meditation because mm. both you get sort of angry sort of, sort of emotions as you're meditating but also kind of calm thing meditation is a way of dealing with all that sort of stuff that you have inside you and so stitching is sort of that way as well for me so i do create a sort of scene and it has to be quiet and quite often most of my work is done late at night when it's mm -hmm. the most quietest part of the day um, so it's really important and um and i i sit everywhere so i sit on the sofa i sit on the bed i sit at a desk it just mm -hmm. depends when the sort of deadline is but mm -hmm. it's it is very ritualistic in its approach, and it is sort of spiritual. It, I mean, it is. You are yeah. with yourself yeah. all the time, and actually it requires a lot of um, mental stamina to maintain that sort of concentration. Because yeah. it's, I, I don't want to like ruin my work here, but, but sometimes it can be a little bit boring on your own, you know, oh, like know. this. So <laughs> it's like, <laughs> if you're stitching thousands of dots for eight hours a day, uh, you know, you need distraction. So, you know, I have the radio, I have TV, I have all of these things because actually, if I don't have it there, that sort of white noise, you allow a lot of other thoughts come in. And, and as I'm making, I'm thinking about lots of different things. I'm, I'm not necessarily thinking about the work that I'm making, but thinking about something else, or mm. I don't know, maybe what I'm having, I really want a croissant, or you know, <laughs> like just stuff like, you know, just like really random <laughs> stuff, but then sometimes quite deep stuff. And um, like meditation, it sort of, mm. it brings up things from the past. So as I'm stitching, the present I'm also thinking about the future and also thinking about the past at the same time and do, do you know if you set yourself these sort of frameworks in terms of the grid and the cube do you know exactly what you're going to stitch each time when you approach those works um, I mean sometimes I do sometimes I work um, I create a whole series of light maps um, and, and and those are much more prescribed but in the more abstract pieces um, it's the abstract that I really crave and I love that you know every time I do something it's completely different so the grid and the circle and the square is a framework is a it's a way into the process so it becomes a sort of holding place so it sets a parameter and then within that I can work quite freely there's a sort of comfort to that and I, I, I mentioned sometimes that there's a form of control within that as well I mean for me making is a form of control and a way of sort of um, Focusing that control into a physical object, mm. um, which is very uniquely mine in itself. Could you tell us about this idea of light and dark? You know, you, you're, I know you do use colour, <laughs> but you're primarily known for this sort of monochromatic work. And I wonder whether, you know, this kind of and work with black, black on white, this kind of interplay between light and dark, that's how I read it. Mm. I wondered if you could talk about that. Um, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, my work is mainly black and white. And maybe not even black, there's sort of tones or shades of mm -hmm. black because there's a real marriage of the material because both are really important in my work because the stitching sort of nestles down into the wool and becomes a different tone. So some of the, my pieces are much more tonal. Um, but there is something really beautiful about the black and the white and this sort of harmony. And actually the back of my work is even darker than the front because of this sort of frantic mess but it is really important that my work is black and white because I sort of a crave a quietness and a calmness and so that's you know my life is colorful and there's lots of colorful things outside mm. but it's the quiet that I can't you know crave and so the black and the white is really important for me on that 
but equally, I love an opposite, you know, the negative and the positive, and the shapes that are created by, um, you know, if you see here, you can see the, the cubes on the screen. Um, it's those shapes that are created um, in the negative of the space. So I quite often think about, like, Japanese concepts like ma and the importance of the negative space being just as important as the space that you're filling, and these sort of shapes that, you know, happen within that. So... Um, it's, it was quite a considered choice to use mm. black and white, but it's, um, and, and I've started to do it the opposite way where I stitch mm. white thread onto black wool, which is a completely different experience now b just because it's impossible to see the black. So it's a whole new way of working for me and much slower, which is not good for, <laughs> not for, not good for my commercial aspects. And, and talking about that different new ways of working, I was really interested and was hoping you could share a little bit about a project you did called Coal Seams, which for the, was for the um, British Textile Biennial. Mm -hmm. And obviously for that, you created a framework where you looked at your own sort of family history and past. And I wondered if that kind of affected your, the process and the way that you worked, and if you could talk about how you sort of organised yourself. Yeah, so um, in 2021, I think, I made a piece uh, as part of the British Textile Biennial, and it asked us to look at our sort of our personal histories within textiles. Um, and so my identity is so built in textiles with this sort of white wool and black cotton. Um, but um, my life had also been shaped and transformed by another material, which was coal. Um, and of course, if anyone knows about the Industrial Revolution, um, and it was based in Lancashire, so I wanted it to sort of have it rooted in the, the land of Lancashire. Um, and if anyone knows about the sort of geology of Lancashire, effectively what made um, Lancashire so like this hotspot of the cotton textile revolution versus Yorkshire, which is the wool, um, it was close to Liverpool, of course, to import the cotton from the colonies um, and from slave trading. But also Lancashire sat atop this giant coal field. And so... Um, Coal has played a really important role in my life. Um, my dad passed away when I was 16, and I got left with loads of um, sort of documentation. And so the mines effectively, you know, killed him. So the piece of work was uh, a way of sort of discovering my past. And I really like this idea of black. Here I am stitching black, and then my dad was, you know, with a material of black as well. Very different, still very labour-intensive. And so I used uh, that piece to explore the hidden sort of underground landscapes that sort of formed my life. So wherever I've lived as a child, I always, I always lived next to or adjacent to a coal mine. So I grew up in South Africa, I moved to Whitbank, which is, uh, Whitbank means, um, uh, this, the South African name, and Malahani means place of coal. Um, and so I lived there, and um, I grew up in Scotland as well, but also in South Staffordshire. Um, and so um, the, that piece specifically documents all the coal mines that my family worked at over the last 100 years. They were Lithu Lithuanian and German immigrants. They arrived in 1912 and started um, mining coal in Newton Grange, just outside of Edinburgh, which... which um, um, provided the coal for the, the mills on the border to weave wool. And so here I am stitching um, coal uh, with cotton, the seams, and also working on this wool. So this connection to material and place and time, you know, coal as being this material of time that we unlock to make us go faster. Um, so there was lots of sort of links there to really uh, unearth. Can I ask you about this... Um, so thinking about coal mining and your father, you know, very physical kind of 
um, engaged activity. And here you are working very close and tight, um, tightly to the body. And this idea that it is about a process that is very intimate, very kind of connected to you know, small gestures. Um, and that you found this, you, even with that, you have a very distinct handprint. Um, could you talk about, you know, the actual kind of stitching that takes place in this sort of smallness, and but actually it has a wider aspect in its realisation? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the way I work is very small and very intimate, and it is about the sort of intimacy of handmaking. That's why I make small yeah. work. The power of the small, I mean, mm. what I love is just that, that single stitch in infinitely different ways can come together mm. to form lots of different things. So my, my process has pretty much stayed quite static, but it takes many shapes and different mm. forms. And I'm really interested in this idea of, you know, dots and atoms and that we all made up of the same sort of materials that come together in lots of different ways. Um, but yeah, this idea of um, stitching itself becoming uh, a record of these sort of tiny gestures. So but also of accumulation of skill. And, yeah. I, and my follow-up question was this idea that skill, you know, we need to dedicate time to skill. Um, and is that something that I think we need to encourage? So yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have got better. Uh, yeah. sewing. Um, Not just you. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> no, but I, I think generally, yeah, um, I think what, I mean, embroidery specifically, what I do it does is it teaches you patience and there is this idea of doing something for a long time and really knowing something. And mm. I, I think very few people nowadays mm. know something mm. like a material, like a process. Um, and so it changes and, you know, becomes part of me and yeah. Um, and there is a record you can see from my earlier pieces to the pieces now how the stitch has changed and how I've changed alongside it. But there is something about committing to something for such a long time and actually really knowing, knowing, mm. knowing it. Mm. I read a book by Oliver Berkman, 4,000 Weeks, which is the average age of a human, which is 80, which when you say 4,000 weeks is kind of frightening. Um, but there's one chapter about principles of patience and this idea of staying on the bus and seeing where it takes you. Yeah. And so for me my process or my practice is a little bit like that. Like, mm. I don't think I'll ever get bored of it. And I love how that, this idea of staying with something really gets you to know it. And it unearths so much about yourself and also about, about yeah. the process. Do you know where it's going to take you next? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, uh, the, same, the same I would like to just keep, you know, sometimes I, I have a, I've made a piece which I started in 2019 and it has a... a I showed it at Collect, it was, and I put 2023, but I've got it back now, so maybe I'll keep adding on to that. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, at, at the moment, I'm trying to find just space and time to sit and, and, and make. Mm. Um, so there's no, there's no clear direction really yet, other than this, this desire just to pick up the fabric and start making. Mm, so great. there's always something yeah. on the go, really, yeah. I think we should invite some questions. Hello. <laughs> From the, um, have we got anyone who'd like to ask Ri Richard anything? Right. His beautiful work. I just think there's some really interesting kind of shared. Perhaps. I don't know, it's, is it a question or a comment? Mm. I've been following you past many years when you started your work and how it's like growing in different directions. Um, I don't know, like the material, when you say you keep working with it, 
is it informing sometime that okay this is enough i want to do something something else some other material i want to pick up because as you mentioned it's slow and commercially also sometime uh, there are these exhibition deadlines and they're pushing you that oh you send the work you know uh, so do you think uh, you want to do a parallel uh, series of work which has a different material altogether and that can be i don't know th these th thoughts comes to you mm -hmm. or you are just okay with what you're using at the material uh, right now um, that's a really good question, thank you. Um, actually, yeah, I am sometimes, quite often, there's um, a conflict between the slowness, like you were saying about the speed in which I can realise ideas or, you know, bits of work in my head. And so I, you know, I do make other work. I'm just more known for the sort of embroidered aspect of it. So I draw in a very traditional way, um, you know, in, with a black pen on, on on various bits of paper, but there is that sort of desire to make other works, and and maybe that's an answer to where does I see my work going now, especially the coal piece, which um, I realised there were bits of work that I wanted to make where I didn't necessarily have the skills in which order to do that. So there was a piece that I wanted to make with just pieces of coal where I would carve into it, um, you know, names or words, and so that's something that I can't do, and I would have to get someone else to help me to do. But also there is a desire to do like printmaking um, as well. So you're, you're right there is that, you know, Stitch would always be the sort of foundation of everything, but also informs other ways in which I might work. So there is a desire there to encompass more sort of visual art practices. Um, there's, a, there's a poem that my great uncle wrote in 1930 called The Last Man at the Wild, which is, and it's a beautiful Scottish poem, which was in really awful word art on my auntie's um, hallway house so I've got that poem now um, and I would never be I wanted to make a, an audio piece of that of that work but I wanted someone from that area with that dialect to to re-say it and so that would be a, an audio or video piece rather than an embroidered piece um, and you know there are lots of things about um, so my surname is Macbethis but um, it, it it got changed when I was uh, when my family were here from Machiavitis, which was Lithuanian, and then um, uh, at school in the 1930s to make them more British, um, it became Macvetis. Um, and so there's this sort of uh, etymology of my, my surname, how it changed. There's three different iterations of that same name. So there's a piece of work within that I want to create as well. So I have ideas brewing, and it's not, it's not all stitch. Yeah. Any other questions? Um, I just wondered how you felt about being a man in a world which is predominantly female-dominated, I guess. <laughs> and, and sort of encouraging new artists who are also male or non-identifying non as female, you know, that sort of... Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question as well. I think on Thursday I was in Huddersfield and I went to um, a festival called Woven and we talked about male and non-binary men in textiles. And, and it is a... I mean, this, this show is wonderfully diverse and that's really exciting because there are men in textiles and they're working, but in the arena maybe that you were saying, which is slightly uh, in embroidery world, I would say, there, there aren't many. Um, there aren't many men, and um, I think um, there's a really beautiful book called Queering the Subversive Stitch, which is by Joseph McBrin, where he sort of tries to reposition that men have always sewn and have always been part of that world. 
Um, and so there needs to be sort of more vis visibility on that. But also that um, in order to do that, we need to change this idea that it's women's work. Like it's not, and that's a reframing that has to happen, you know, in society yeah. and also in, in, in fine arts Absolutely. A lot. And, uh, and maybe Gemma and I could come back on that because obviously there's been a lot of, um, there have be, been exhibitions and kind of saying how the, fem the feminine is attached to textiles and we very deliberately decided we weren't even going to bring that up. And, but we knew it was within it and it would be something that was really important to discuss in this kind of forum and through the work itself. But we very deliberately didn't, we have in none of the press releases we've actually taken gender out because we felt that was implicit. So, it, but it, of course it's, it's something that is... And it's, it's something I don't talk about in my work at all. Yeah. It's not part of the narrative of my work. I just happen to be a man who sews. Yeah. Um, and so that is always a, it's always a massive question that people always ask me that I'm trying to make some kind of political point or I'm going against society, but that it's, I, I'm, I'm not making any point no. at all other than that like it's, it, you can yeah. just do whatever you want effectively. Yeah. So well, we hope I think that, if that we will encourage, you know, visitors, we hope that it will encourage anyone and everyone to see textiles in its broadest sense um, and its, its ability to kind of go to be future look, you know, forward looking. So, you say that. Sorry, you say that uh, we are walls are flat, but we are, we do a, a lot of the things you were saying. I was nodding because I'm like, that's exactly, that's exactly, um, and it's very. Um, thank you for asking that question. You know about uh, how do you feel being in a man's um, uh, doing something that traditionally is assumed to be, it, it's a woman's thing, you know? And funny enough, when I first came in, in my head I was like, wait. Um, then I hadn't really looked at all the artists, I was like, oh, I'm sure it's gonna be all women. And then I was like, wait, no, it's, it's not all women, it's everybody. I'm like, okay, it's interesting. Then I saw the video of you doing your work upstairs in the reading room. If, uh, if you haven't done that, please do that. It's a, it's a beautiful work. And also it shows Alice um, working. And I was like, wait, that's very, very interesting. And um, I'm glad you don't bring the issue of gender because I feel like, even though it's important, I feel like we talk too much about certain things that we lose focus about the other important things. You know, I, I, you know it's funny how you start a conversation about something and everything still goes back to gender. I'm like, come on, people. You know, p men have been sewing. In Nigeria, the, the people who do most of the weaving uh, uh, men and you know but nobody talks much about that they talk more about the women's side oh it's a women's thing I'm like no you know and the same thing when I because I work with uh, hair a practice that's uh, done by women um, they expect that I should be talking about gender but I say I deliberately if you ask me a question gender related if you notice I won't respond or I'll just dive away from it because I feel like it distracts um, and I feel like the most important thing, especially with this exhibition, is the idea that you mentioned, I forgot to say, is process. Because it's the process that informs the time. You know, you know, having, engaging yourself in something, committing yourself to something that you are willing to repeat over and over again. My mom used to say, I'm not a very patient person, naturally, you know, generally but I'm extremely patient in my work, which I guess you also 
and you also are, as opposed to any other person, especially if you love something you're doing, you're no longer thinking about the repetitiveness or how monotonous it is. It almost becomes like uh, your, pro your, your brain is kind of programmed. You just sit and you're just doing, and you're, you're wandering away while you're trying to make this thing. And I think that's what, that's, that's, uh, what makes it very enjoyable and very enduring because the, the issue of time will only come up when somebody interrupts and says, hey, I need something from you. And then you're like, oh, wait, shoot, I've been doing this for that long, you know. Um, but yeah, thank you. It's really beautiful. I'm just going to quickly come back in to say the issue of gender will be really interesting to discuss with Young in as well. So I think we've got some really lovely conversations that are threads, that have thread interconnecting threads, not to be too corny. <laughs> Hello. Great, and I was going to say we've probably got time for one more question for Richard, if anyone's got one. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to think of one? Oh, I'm disappointed now. <laughs> right, in that case, we'll probably just take another couple of minutes break if anyone wants to um, go to the bathroom or just, take, just stretch their legs, um, and then we'll start up again with Yong and Hong in about five minutes' time. Thanks very much. Hello everyone, welcome back. So we're now going to be talking to our third artist, Yong In Hong. Um, Yong was as a visual artist who's actually based in Bristol here at Spike Island, um, Spike Island Studio Complex, which some of you may know just down the river from us. Uh, she's an artist who works across different media, so working in installation, sound, performance, textile and drawing. She describes herself as an artist looking for ways to question the idea of equality and how equality can be practiced through art. The practice of equality is tested for exploring marginalized cultural practices as well as for questioning the hierarchy embedded in society and having enhanced her sewing skills from seamstresses at Seoul's Dongdaemun Market where such female labor is considered lower class. She tries to question the role of female craft and labor in the history of modern Korea. Um, and Yongin has presented work at the Kunstel Extra City Antwerp, at Seoul Museum of Art, the National Museum of Contemporary Art in Seoul, the Korean Cultural Centre in London, Block Universe First in London, and the Gwangju Biennale, amongst many other places. And we're really thrilled that we've got an artist who is so local to us here in Bristol, um, representing herself in the exhibition. So, Alice, do you want to start with the first question? Yes, welcome, Yongin. We're really delighted to have your work here. And of course, Yongin has her work at the RWA as well, for those of you who have got time to rush over. Um, you, you're, as Gemma says, your, your, your practice is broad, but it's rooted in, much of it is rooted in textile making. Could you just tell us your artistic journey? You know, tell us how, where it started, how it's evolved, and how, these different how it's evolved into these different forms and materials. So um, I came to the UK to study at Goldsmiths College. It was 98. And I finished my study MA in 2000, where I showed um, textile work for the first time. So it was a degree show. I made the stage curtain, because I was always interested in theatricality. As soon as I finished the degree, I realized I do not have a studio. And I, have a, I don't have a storage space. I don't have workshop access. So then I had a one domestic sewing machine with me. <laughs> so I began using sewing machine to make three-dimensional 
object I began uh, doing embroidery with the machine. And then I had the first international exhibition in Taiwan where I invited to uh, have a residency and then make site-specific work uh, where I traveled with the sewing machine and made a quite large um, the um, architecture style, uh, the structure, all made out of the fabric. So um, it, the textile helped me um, in, in many practical ways to, to save money as well as sustain my, my career um, internationally because shipping was easier. Uh, I didn't have a, I didn't need a huge storage. So without questioning, I, I began lots of sewings and doing textile works. And because I um, began my career in Asia, and then I went to India, where um, I got help. The, the organizer was British Council. They organized so that I can access sewing machine there, who was a male. Um, and was using industrial freehand embroidery machine where I learned how to use the machine. And I went back to Korea for three and a half years where um, I walked into this market district where I encountered several the sewing women um, who, who was sewing blankets and, and clothes. And then um, I, I, wo I walked into and I was asking whether I can learn the sewing from them. So I continuously enhanced these sewing skills by using sewing machines, but just simply because I really loved it. It was quick and, and because originally I was trained as a sculptor, I still thought I am making sculpture just by using sewing. I I, and I thought I am drawing with the machine, I'm painting with the machine. And then um, many years later, I began to question because I do make installations and sounds and performances, but um, textile has become always the point where I come back to. So it, it has become my core identity as an artist, like sewing or textile makers. and. So I began to question where this came from and why I'm doing this. And I began um, reading about this um, 60s and 70s South Korea where the, the, the working class women were working in the factory situation, making garments, contribute enormously to the national economy but without being known because they were unable to write, unable to read. So their history has not been part of South Korean history until 2020, I think so. So I began reading about their uh, narratives and began learn about it. And then I began realizing, oh, actually um, the, the process I was doing as art making was practicing labor. I was interested in, interested in um, doing sewing or working on textiles because it was more like a labor rather than, you know, like <coughs> making painting with a brush or making the sculptures with the, the castings, which were quite a lot about Western art history. So I began um, questioning myself um, whether I can use um, culture-specific method in order to make work. So, I mean, not all of my work is about 
that, but that has become a crucial question in my work that I'm still trying to deliver. So that's that's where I am. <laughs> Thank you. And I guess what was really interesting with the work that you've produced for the exhibition, so we commissioned Youngin to make a new work for the show called Revoiced, which is just in the gallery here on the ground floor, is that I think very similarly to other artists in the exhibition, including Alice's work, is that you bring in lots of those voices from that cultural history and from those stories. Could you tell us more about the making of Revoiced and some of those stories in particular that you've brought into the work? Yeah, they... Um, so the content of the work, so um, I, I encountered this book written by one of ex-factory workers um, who was working in the factory 60s and 70s. When she was 53, she went to university and she wrote her thesis about her life. So that book uh, has been published and I read it. So some of the, the sentences and wordings were taken from that book. And then um, I, I had the opportunity to work with a seamstress in South Korea through the Busan Museum of Modern Art, where I worked with uh, the currently working as a seamstress. And, and two sentences came from our in-person conversations. So those wordings were woven. And, and there, there are the, the vocabularies on the right side it's the, the terms that used in the factory still now, uh, originally Japanese, because um, the Korea was modernized by the Japan, and probably some of the textile factories were set up by the Japan. So um, interestingly, those uh, particular terms are still used in um, sewing industry, which I never heard about. So it's a Japanese, it's the words, used in particular community who is a sewing. I wonder if you want to, mm. I've got them written out here. Do you want to read yes. them? So, um, so my work is on the ground floor, if you haven't seen it, um, and there are two glass pools on top, so that's, that's my work. And so it says, Narashi, Gada, Kurepashi, Mikiashi, Shirodo, Kyukyu, and, and so, for instance, kada means pattern. You know, in order to make costume, you, you, you draw the pattern. And so kada is pattern. Uh, mikiashi is a lining area. Narashi, the process that you um, kinds of prepare the, the role of the, the fabric. So this is a um, few examples. And do you, shall I say about sentences as well? Yeah, I think <laughs> so, because they're very... In, you know, they define the process of weaving the work and constructing the work. So uh, one sentence which you can't read because they are all woven, um, and, but one sentence I used was only female uh, sewers were told that there will be no payment for the first month. So she, she is um, the seamstress actually I met last year. So this is the, we are talking about 2022. It's not over 60s, 70s, and she was saying um, the the sewing, sewing sewing labor market for women has not changed at all in the 21st century Korea. Mm. So I am interested in history. Um, I'm interested in history throughout all my practices, and um, I revisit specific uh, moments of time and space which has not been 
been fully explored. So that's um, the, the, my interest. But, and also, um, it's about my own identity because I was born in South Korea. I grew up there in the 70s and 80s where the country was under harsh dictatorship, which I did not know because I was so young. So I, w I am interested in revisiting that time where um, I experienced those control indirectly without knowing what that is about, which form of oppression, which country taking place every corner of the world. So for me, um, this, the, uh, the notion of history or oppressed history or unexplored history is about my questions of um, the, the kinds of the form of oppression which is continuously repeated or repeating in current time in the future. So through, through my own um, country or history of the country, I try to revisit my own identity and I also try to question um, that form of control that we experience in different forms through my work. One thing that really struck me the other day when we were talking about your work, when you, you were talking about the, um, the technology that you used and, the diff and how you make your work and thinking about that idea of history yes. and process. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about some of, some of that? Yeah. Because I know you use very specific types of machinery. Yeah. So earlier on, earlier on I, I talked about sewing machine. Um, I, I use a specific machine that, that doesn't produce anymore because it used to be, it, it's in quite big industrial scale, but um, now you know, as you know, the textile industry has been digitalized and computerized. Um, equally, um, I got to be exposed to this particular machine um, located in Baspa University where I work at the moment. Um, it's, uh, it's industrial needle punch machine, um, but it's not computerized. It's one machine existing in entire country. <laughs> it's very old. It has uh, hundreds of needles that break the fabric so that uh, it, it combines multiple layers into one. So I use this machine to produce the work currently um, shown at the Arnolfini. Um, I'm interested in these very half hands, half manual, uh, half machinery machines that doesn't produce anymore because that, that carries this notion of probably modernization or end period of the modernizations. And, and I'm interested in kinds of craftsmanship still embedded in those machines. And, and in that similar context, um, I worked in, in collaboration with a glass blower um, based in, in Bristol, who made these two glass balls on top. So, yeah, <laughs> so that's kinds of the methods I deliberately look for. Um, and so, for instance, um, I'm also learning willow weaving and, and weaving with the natural fiber. Um, again, um, because, you know, this, the value of the craftsmanship um, is, is disappearing. I feel that, so I, I try to try to learn as much as possible, but also try to embrace those spirit of um, the values that the uh, modern world is slowly, slowly forgetting about. So that, mm. that's some, somehow uh, related to the method of my work. Yeah. 
Thank you, Youngin. It's, it's fascinating because there are so many crossovers and I think what you're all describing here is how materials mm. and processes have this kind of authentic um, um, way to, um, to kind of tell the story of our lives and whether those are kind of complex as attached to labor and politics and social history, whether they're personal and it can, it can bring all of those together as um, in, in a really authentic way. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how, you know, how textiles, you know, you, you just, you, you've done that, you know, really powerfully in terms of these women, you know, recognizing that labor for them is about an economy, a kind of means of survival and, mm. a, a, and, and, and something that is practice. Mm but you're bringing that into this kind of artistic context. So this idea of valuing mm. the skills yeah. and the materials, yeah. which have been, you know, I think textiles has a sort of currency in the art world now, mm. and you're bringing that story through mm. your artistic practice. But could you say how, I'm asking you a very broad question, but how does textiles sit, you know, mm. how, how does it tell the story, mm. tell stories in the art world? What, what, is, mm. it, what is it about? its material qualities and the processes. I'm, I'm pretty sure um, we all agree in that sense, but um, for me, when, when I was attracted to, to working with textile without knowing why, I mean, in, when I was in my earlier career, uh, was that it was incredibly flexible material that you can alter, change, <laughs> fix. <laughs> Um, and you can also recycle. By the way, I recycled one of my old work in the current oh. piece with some text, right? Um, um, so this flexibility of materials and also the tactile quality that this material is is always, you know, there. You can you can you can touch it. It's not heavy. It's it's not difficult to transform. So the fl flexibility and then tactile quality as well as the Is it like limitless possibility of transformation. Mm. I think that's something. That's, that's fantastic. And mm. is it important where some of the materials are sourced from, where, you know, that they carry this connection with their point of origin mm. um, or um, um, the actual type of material? Richard talked about the cotton. Mm. Bags and I yeah, it's an interesting question. I collect fabric from everywhere. I mean, I um, you know I came here to study, but then I traveled abroad in Asia. I came back again, and then I showed abroad in Europe. So my life has been quite nomadic in terms of my art career. And whenever I go somewhere to have exhibition, I buy fabric, <laughs> and I use them in my work. And and so. Um, for me, um, the, the, the language of textile is pretty much about the global as well. Mm. I mean, although um, I work specifically and I question specifically about um, this South Korean, the, the textile labels and then the, the embedded history um, engaged with this particular type of the labor, but um, textile itself, I think it, it's something that really broadly shared, you know, it's very friendly to the public, 
And um, although I, I use very heavy uh, theme sometimes, um, the work becomes really enjoyable. And Susanna was asking yesterday about the, the bright color, which is contradicting the, the con heavy content of the, my work. I think um, it's, it's because um, for me, textile language is pretty much about positivism, mm -hmm. and then it translates, um, it, it can translate the message into something more shareable, um, positive, and then celebratory. The utopia again, <laughs> yes. So that's yeah. something uh, I am very much interested in. Mm. And thinking about materials, um, Fomi, you mentioned obviously that you sort of yeah, literally sort of salvage things as you're sort of, yeah, on your daily trip to the studio, or even here in Bristol. I know we went for dinner on, you'd only been here, I think, less than 24 hours, and you, you had to leave our dinner date to go and collect the lamp that you'd arranged <laughs> already, that you'd already found ready to sort of bring into your artwork. And I know, Yongin, that you've worked with Bristol Glass, and I wondered what the importance that that was, like incorporating a local material into the work. I, I think... Um, Honestly, it was the first time. I mean, I have been showing broadly, but except Bristol. So the, this year, um, at the IWA, as well as in Anofini, I'm showing my textile work for the first time. And the, the piece in the Anofini is a new commission that I was given the opportunity to make the work here. Um, I wanted to produce the work that I can collaborate with the people based in Bristol. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the collaboration is something that I pursue through my work um, because collaboration is the way actually you can learn skills by working together. So that's something um, I wanted to do through the glass making and the, the needle punching machine uh, at the bus by university was something that I never thought about using for my work, but I used for the first time in 2021 because um, of the, the, the one of the technicians' support. So we were working together. So th those kinds of collaboration takes place at the beginning. And I, I appreciate that that happened in the city I live <laughs> and, and through the place I work for. So yeah, that, that meant a lot. Can I just... Mm. Um, ask you, are you doing the open studios on Spike Island this year? I did it. You did it. It's yeah, already happened. I did it. Yeah, <laughs> so anyone can go and visit Yongin in the future when, when it happens again. Um, and I think there's kind of sites and workplaces, you know, you talked about vast fire machinery mm. and the way that you can kind of realise your mm. practice in different ways. You know, Richard was talking about mm. kind of its portability, but also mm situatedness mm. that you need to sort of access certain kinds of mm. machinery and, and mm. materials. Mm. I just wanted to ask you about, shall I ask you about gender since that came up? You know, the mm. your work is about the empowerment of mar marginalized women, you know, who mm. are in these factories. And one of the phrases here is that they earn in one day a, a, the, a cup of coffee. You know, that's the, the amount of money it would buy them a cup of coffee. So it's about using, turning the lens on textiles mm. to say, mm. how do we address these this in inequities mm. um, and, it, and using it as a for its kind of political voice. Yeah. Um, is there a way that we can change? You know, does the work, does your work aspire to mm. 
open up that discussion to mm. reveal, you know, the I mean, in a way, the, the because my interest in history, I mean, history has been very male dominant and human centered. So I, I questioned that through my work, but um, the use of textile wasn't intentionally gender specific. It just naturally happened. Okay. And then um, in, in the opposite direction, I began to question like, where did I learn it? Mm. And then I realized, oh, that was one of the sewing person in the Dung Demon market. And then their, hit, their, their narratives has recently been written as a book as well as film. And then, and then um, I realized actually the labor-wise, um, Korea is actually one of the worst <laughs> countries in terms of labor equality. The women's, uh, women's are paid much less. Um, out of wealthy countries, um, Korea is known to be notoriously known and for is it inequality of the and labor. And is it part of that? Mm. Um, economy that we're buying cheap clothing is it exactly in that? Yeah. and and especially when I when I was when I was born and when I was growing up um, because Korea was so poor it was developing country um, the, the labor was much cheaper which now those labor moved to Bangladesh and Vietnam so it's you know it's 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 rotating mm. um, in different forms but um, it it has been very cheap labor, and still it is relatively very cheap labor dominated by women workers. Mm. So I wanted to, um, through this work at the Anofini, as well as two um, previous work closely related to this work, which was Urban and Echoed and um, A Color of Waterfall, which we wanted to initially show. Um, there were the work I firstly, um, um, dealt with um, by using these quoted sentences and words mm. to question about the labor in inequality, which is specifically related to textile industry. And of course, we mm. have our own responsibility yeah. in that cycle. So, so actually, what you're saying is mm. we need to consider the effect that we have in our own lives on those women. Yeah, yeah. I mean, y yes, I think so. And then... Um, so those, let's say, the garments made in the country where, where labor is extremely cheap, even now, are consumed in welfare countries. So that, that pattern, which, um, which is um, pretty um, obvious, as we know, in, in textile industry, is something that I want to question, um, especially because when I'm working in textiles, and then especially when I'm coming from the cultural background where the country was part of the, that manipulation of the labor, where, where I was born without knowing what was happening in the country. Yeah. Mm. And it's really interesting, I think, because that I'm sort of relating textiles back to sort of the garment industry, for example. Mm. It was something we talked about when we talked about this idea of textiles as being something that's very accessible for audiences in the sense mm. that we all have a relationship with textiles, you know, just through the clothes that we're wearing, you know. Yeah. That's a very immediate starting point. So it's really interesting to think about how you've then sort of decoded that in your work. Mm. I think we've got yeah. time now to open up the floor for some questions for Yongin, and then also if there are any, any other questions for Richard and Ifoma before we finish. So would anyone like to ask a question? Ask about um, 
maybe you talked about it a bit about the because I noticed uh, this is my first introduction to you, to you and your work, which is very beautiful. Um, I was uh, I was kind of interested with the way that you juxtaposed textile with glass, and listening to the history that you gave as to how you came about into uh, working with textiles. I don't know much about the Japanese art, but I I want to believe it had a good um, glass making. Um, industry at some point, and I was wondering if subconsciously you were tapping, you know, tapping from that uh, heritage, and if that if that informed your um, uh, your inclusion of glass, you know, glass making through the Bristol uh, glass industry. It's an interesting question, um, not specifically about glass. Um, glass came to my mind. Um, when, when I accidentally went into glassmaker in Bath, actually, there's also a glassmaker, and I accidentally observed how it was made. And it, it was, I realized this glassmaking craft is very specific craft. That you, you need a really long period of training. I was told that I need at least eight years to train myself to blow that scale of the glass. And so I immediately was interested because this is, in a way, I think it's it's endangered craft in in this country. I mean, you you find not five in Bristol. There's only one and one in Plymouth and one in Bath, and then it takes long time. It's time consuming. It's labor intensive. So probably for younger generation, and and there there will be less and less be interest in spending that enormous amount of time in a very very hot <laughs> the workshop space. So. I was interested in that, and it was kind of nice encounter because I was living in Bristol, in the southwest region. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, hi, I've got a, um, a question for Ifoma. I was just going to, I was just. I'm um, absolutely in intrigued by your work, and I love it, and I want to spend some more time with it. But I was mm -hmm. really interested to know if, when you've shown in different countries, if there's been a different reaction to your work depending on that country's relationship with recycling plastic. For example, in this country here, we have boxes now where we put it in and then it's taken away, and then we, you know, we can put it out of our mind and we're thinking we're doing a good thing, but you're kind of, I think you're bringing that back to us and we're having to look at it head on, you know? Mm. And I wondered if in different countries there's a different way of doing that and whether that's, you know, influenced people's response. Uh, if I understand the question you're asking, if um, I have noticed how people react to my work based on how they react um, to the idea of recycling plastic, yes? yes. Okay. Yes. Um, hmm. I have not really consciously paid attention uh, but I want to believe that people do, would, I mean, it's only natural that people will react to a certain degree um, based on how obvious a particular material, plastic for instance, is in that environment. Um, uh, say for instance, of course in Nigeria, it will be expected that people will be like, oh wait, and especially now if you look at the art scene now, um, uh, in the last 10, 15, 20, well, 10 to 15 years, there's been a, a great shift back to 
uh, the traditional way of making, which which was repurposing things. Because if you look at um, traditional traditional now, I'm referring to past um, Nigerian art making. It was we worked with the the environment. It was general. You know, we we created works from the things that we found around us, just because there was um, an understanding of the relationship between us as human beings and our interactions with the material and the environment around us. And so it was only natural that we walked with the things around us, um, not necessarily things that were imported uh, and foreign materials, uh, you know, using canvas on paint from wherever. Um, and so uh, subconsciously we were also dealing with these issues of these environmental problems that we are dealing with now but through our practices. Um, and so you would notice that people have said, art, a lot of artists have started going back to the idea of um, you know, how our forefathers and mothers were making art, which is repurposing stuff um, around us. And, and there's been a, a, a greater pull towards plastic bags. And so you would have people more, um, are becoming more receptive of, oh wait, so this is what I can do with plastic, you know, this is how I can contribute to dealing with this thing and, you know, create something that would shift our attention from this negative object to something very positive, as opposed to when you're in a place, you know, um, I think when people see my work in a place where recycling plastic is more obvious, um, and people have shifted away from plastic to paper, uh, which I say doesn't really resolve the problem much because you're only creating another problem. Um, the reaction is more, I might be wrong, but I feel like their, their, their response is more of, um, is more in terms of the form as opposed to the material. You know, like, oh wow, it's, you know, it's this thing you've created. And then later on when they catch on that it's the material, like, oh, okay, cool. It's that material, as opposed to seeing the material first, and then the the form, um, you know, uh, which for me I would have preferred the opposite. But in it, there's never a wrong way to look at. Someone asked me that question: Is there a right? And I was talking to a lady um, day before yesterday, and she was like, "So, so is there is there a right way to read your work?" And I said, "There is no right or wrong way to read my work. What's most important for me is how you perceive the work, because." It's, um, I want the material to be able to give you the various ideas, you know, that experience that it can keep, it can keep rebirthing itself in different forms in how you and I interpret it and how you and I perceive or receive it and um, choose to respond to it, uh, whether by saying, oh, okay, this is something that I would want to be a part of or not, um, yeah. I mean, I would expect that, uh, I don't think I would have expected anything any different. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm actually more curious about how people perceive the work as opposed to me. Um, I used to be very keen to want to tell people about what the work is about, but then I realized that I'm taken away from that experience by corrupting your mind and telling you the idea when you're supposed to be experiencing it. And if you don't catch on up to what it is I, I was thinking when I created the work, it's fine. It means you've created your own story, your own understanding, your own interpretation, and your own and interaction with the work, which is also positive.
Thank you, Ifoma. Any last questions? No, we'll leave. Can I throw out a question to all of you? Um, what's been your reading of Brett's, the show as a whole? And, you know, obviously we've heard the artists here today. Um, are there some particular works that, you're, that you've responded to? Have you seen connections between, surprising connections between works? Um, have you seen materials that maybe are unfamiliar? Does anyone want to? Yeah. I haven't seen it. Oh, well, that's. The provenance of things about the place of textiles within, within the, the context of a fine art gallery like the Amazonian. What, what people think about that, because it's come a long way in the last, I would say, 20 years. I think what you're saying is really interesting because all of these three artists have said, how does art change minds? How does it kind of negotiate its place with the world? You know, what, how does it kind of shape society? How does it address lots of kind of global issues? And actually, you know, here's Gemma, who's, you know, the, the head of exhibitions here at the Arnolfini. There has been a shift, hasn't there, in terms of this threads was originally Gemma's conception and this idea that, you know, how we position other material practice as central to negotiating some of our, our kind of ideas, our challenges, our dreams, our ways that we create sort of utopian futures, you know. Do you want to sort of comment? Well, I was going to say what's really interesting, I think, about that idea of sort of what we call, what we even or what we call fine art or craft or design was definitely something which was very much at the heart of this exhibition was thinking about how we could break down some of those barriers while still respecting them as terms and as art forms in their own right and it was really lovely hearing each of you tell your different story about how you sort of started working with textiles and, and obviously Young and you mentioned that you started out with sculpture and Ifoma you started out with painting and Richard you said you obviously discovered embroidery but that what you found there was a me and drawing yeah and that it was a medium that allowed you to tell a story and to work with something in a particular way and that is something which we really hope people do see when they come to the exhibition the, yeah the all of the possibilities of using textiles in different ways in that in that sense mm. and we 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 called it threads breathing lives into materials because we genuinely thought um materials and i've heard all three of you talk about this how it kind of encapsulates the life, the living experience, you know, in terms of, you, and I love the way you, Ifoma, talked about kind of tradition being now. Um, in its very presence, it's very much part of how we engage with the world and our relationship with the world. But it's challenging because we've got technology, which, and, you know, Youngin, you were talking about how it, we'd lose a loss of skill, a loss of knowledge, a loss of understanding about we, how we, we, we work with materials, and Richard, you were saying how we need to invest time, we need to have a sort of deep immersion in that understanding, and maybe that's how we understand how to shape our futures and our rebalance some of these kind of critical understandings about, you know, 
the environment, climate, so stru social structures. Um, I really liked the way you talk about creativity as being and making artwork about rebirthing. I think that's really lovely. This idea that it kind of re reforms. Yeah, in general, I feel like every one of those experiences that uh, were are deliberately or not, there's always every day actually there's you're being reborn. Every day you go to sleep and you wake. You know, you can control how you go to bed, but you cannot control how you wake up. And so every time you wake up. address all these things that you encounter, whether as an artist or, you know, in your various uh, fields. So we, we are always going through that passage of rebirth, you know, in, um, in, in our students. Thank you, Ifoma. I think that's a really lovely point, I think, which we're going to leave you on, that idea of reborn and rebirth. And when you come out of here today, it'll be really exciting to see what you then think of the exhibition as you experience it, after having heard these stories from just three of the artists in the exhibition. So I'd like to ask everyone to give a round of applause to Ifoma and to Richard and to Yongin and to Alice for today. Thank you very much everyone for coming and I hope you enjoy the exhibition. We've got other events happening as part of the FREDS programme so have a look on our website and certainly if you have families and young children we'll be running family workshops twice a week from the community space on the second floor throughout the summer holidays so please do come along and join in and they're all free events. Thank you.